Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 375 of the podcast. My name's Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I'm so excited to have Rich Velotis on the podcast today, talk about Western spirituality and succession. Today's episode is brought to you by our partners at Remodel Health. Do you know listeners of this podcast have saved $2.1 million by going to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry and by Red Letter Challenge. If your church actually needs some unity, check out redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry and uh, you can learn more there. Well, uh, Rich is a guy I've known for a number of years, and uh, you may have heard of New Life Church in New York City. He succeeded Pete Scazzaro there in 2014, uh, one of the rare examples of a really, really good succession that worked out well. Uh, We talk about all kinds of things. He's got a brand new book called The Deeply Formed Life. We talk about what's wrong with Western spirituality, which is really interesting because I'm very interested in root causes. And I know a lot of you are struggling with like, why are people not coming back to church? And you know, what's the whole deal with online? Blah, blah, blah. Well, we're going to talk sort of the, the the question under the question. Also, what are some ingredients for successful succession for young leaders? What went right at New Life? And how to live a deeply formed life, which is something I'm increasingly interested in. So uh, New Life Church is a multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in Elmhurst, Queens, New York City. Prior to becoming the lead pastor, Rich gave oversight to New Life Small Group Ministry and was a preacher. Uh, he is a graduate of Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary. He's a good reader, loves to read, preach. And I'm, I'm just so glad to see in the next generation of leaders, people who uh, sort of tap into a deeper vein. And uh, anyway... Also a husband and a father, so I think you're going to really appreciate that. And in what I'm thinking about, I want to ask uh, two questions as we head into 2021. So if you listen through to the end, as many of you do, you're going to hear that. For those of you who are new, thanks for listening, subscribing. We're just glad to have you here. And uh, if this uh, episode means something to you, make sure you share it on the social channels, okay? So uh, we are heading into the end of the year. You're thinking about what's next. It's time to reevaluate your health benefits. Well, Things are challenging enough for leaders right now, but um, how are you going to do health insurance next year? Well, as you may know, Remodel Health has helped leaders of this podcast alone save $2.1 million. That's just in 18 months. So imagine what your ministry could do if you could offer better benefits or the same benefits for less money and reinvest the savings directly into ministry. Um, So we know it is a little bit of a challenging time. That's one way to actually save money without really changing anything, maybe making things better. That rarely happens. So if you're curious, go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to learn more. You can get access immediately to their free savings calculator, church buyer's guide, and brand new ebook. Uh, That's remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. It is late October. It's almost November and uh, Christmas is right around the corner. Then 2021 is here and there's a lot of planning work. You're already overwhelmed. Well, have you thought about Red Letter Challenge? This is also a very divided time and um, Red Letter Challenge can be a great way of bringing your church together. It's based on the teachings of Jesus. There's the Red Letter Challenge and the Being Challenge, which is brand new. And I sat down with Red Letter Challenge founder Zach Zender and I said, 
40-day turnkey campaigns, they kind of work like in normal conditions, but these aren't normal conditions. Can a turnkey campaign be something that actually works in a pandemic? Here's what Zach had to say. Yeah, great question. Churches that have done our 40-day challenges have seen it really be a tool that has unified their congregation. That's the word we keep hearing, unity, unity, unity. You know, as church is getting a lot more complicated with physical and digital, we're going to be looking for more and more tools to come together. And I think what better than a tool that's centered on Jesus? And so we've actually heard rave reviews on how this has brought churches closer together in a divided and distance time like never before. Well, if you're looking for a way to really unify and reassemble your church digitally or in person, check out redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. Uh, there are discounts of 10 to 40%. And just for podcast listeners, if you're a pastor still on the fence, uh, he will ship this out to you for free, like a free copy. You can assess it yourself. Redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. By the way, international listeners, there are many of you around the world. Uh, they will ship to you as well. So with all that said, I'm so excited to dig into my conversation with Rich Velotis. Rich, welcome to the podcast. It's just great to finally have you on. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Love this podcast and uh, look forward to our conversation. Well, me too. So we have a lot of young leaders listening who are either have just done or will soon do what you did, which is to take over an established church as a lead pastor, right? Succession almost never goes well. Uh, but I would say, how many years ago was that, that you took over for Pete Scazzaro? It'll be seven years uh, this October. So October 6th will be seven years. Wow. And look, you're still alive. You're breathing. You have a smile on your face. Like it went okay, didn't it so far? It, it went a lot better than many people thought it would go and <laughs> myself included. So uh, I'm, I'm so grateful just to be in this place and see how new life continues to uh, thrive. Yeah. And how, how old were you, if you don't mind me asking, when you took over? Yeah, I was, I'm 41. So I was, I was 34 when I officially took over. Uh, but behind the scenes, I was leading the church for a year and a half prior to that. So I was in the role functionally uh, at about 32, 33, wow. and then took over at 34. <laughs> and Pete had been there for how long as senior? 26 years. Yeah, exactly. So long legacy. Was he the founding pastor? He was, 1987. He yeah. founded the church with his wife and a couple of other people. And, and uh, you know, his story is well documented, but... Uh, he's the he's the one who started it. Yeah, so this is really fascinating because generally speaking, succession is not going well. So I'd love to start here. Take us through some principles because this is going to be the story in the next decade, right? The average senior pastor is 57. So they're going to be handing off to people at your age and stage. So what happened that went well? And then what are some bumps that you're like, you know what, if Pete and I could do that over again, we'd we'd redo that. So many things uh, come to mind. I think the first thing that made the transition uh, and succession a success was Pete's maturity. Yeah. Uh, his And it seems to just be like, yeah, of course. But I, I think his own work that he did, seeing a therapist on a regular basis, um, talking about what it means to let go, uh, his own interior work that he did was pivotal for the transition. And so his own uh, emotional maturity. Uh, I also think about, we, we brought in outside consultants and one consultant in particular 
helped us to navigate very clearly the succession process. And so if it was left up to us, um, we just wouldn't have the, uh, the objectivity to uh, make some decisions. So he came in, we brought in a consultant, and we had a three-year chart uh, with various um, categories, preaching, vision, hiring, firing, leading staff meetings. And at what percentage would Pete be doing it this year and what percentage I'd be doing it this year? And then, you know, as the years progressed, the percentages would change. Uh, that outside counsel was so important. And then having a strong elder board uh, to help us continue moving that forward, uh, to keep us accountable to that process and to that time frame, uh, that was in- incredibly important. Uh, it was a slow process, Carrie. So, I mean, uh, I had a year and a half behind the scenes where I was being tested to see, you know, can I lead in this capacity? Uh, and so it was very thoughtful, slow. The entire process from beginning to end was about four and a half years. So from the mm. first time I said to the elders, hey, I sense God calling me to step out of this role. Um, and and Pete would then remain, which is also a unique thing. Usually pastors leave. Yeah, yeah. I'm in that same process where I'm I'm still around. Yeah. So, so he stayed, uh, but it was a four-year process. And it was slow, it was thoughtful. Uh, and when it after it happened, what also made it, the transition helpful was the clear job descriptions. I mean, we, it was crystal clear. What would Pete be doing? What would Pete not be doing? And um, what would his salary be for the first few years and then afterward there? So we, I mean, we talked about all the, uh, what tends to be difficult things to talk about with succession and transition. So, uh, yeah, his maturity, outside counsel, uh, strong elder board, a slow methodical process, clear job descriptions. Um, I think all of those things contributed to a really healthy succession. It's funny that you would start with maturity because um, in in the not so good stories I hear, that seems to be a real issue that, you know, this 50, 60, 70 year old lead pastor just didn't have the emotional wherewithal to be able to handle it. Uh, and from the outside looking in, Pete's been on the show before, we'll have him again. So I'd love to ask him this question. But from what you can see in your seat, what were some of the issues that Pete had nailed down that made it possible for him to step away without becoming that overbearing, overreaching, meddling person that kind of destroys things? Like what, what are the shifts he would have had to make to do that? And what did you benefit from? I, I think the first shift was uh, moving away from new life being uh, personality driven. And um, I don't think we had a high personality, but when you have a strong leader, uh, like Pete, uh, who is a very strong presence. I mean, you just gravitate towards that personality-driven kind of model. But what Pete would do regularly, beyond just sharing the pulpit and preaching and taking uh, a month off every summer and having sabbaticals where he went away for three to four months and the church had to exist without him, I think that set us up that, you know, the, the church is not built around Pete's gifts, the church can function and flourish um, as a body with people stepping in, stepping in with their own and leading with their own unique gifts. So I think Pete created a culture where the church did not have to function and exist based on his gifts and his presence. That's probably the biggest thing. So by the time, as he was slowly transitioning, he started preaching less and the congregation began to see, yeah, we're not 
um, building this church around this guy. We're building this church around, uh, you know, Jesus and a community of leaders that we believe can take us forward. So I, I think it's, um, uh, and, and then again, back to his own inner work, I think Pete, uh, most pastors don't do the kind of inner work that makes succession uh, successful. Uh, and he had to wrestle with, who am I apart from this position? Who am I apart from the attention I'm going to get? Rich is going to start getting a whole lot more attention than I'm going to get from our congregation. And he noticed that very quickly. The other thing I would mentioned just in passing, Carrie, that made it successful is we talked all the time. Hmm. All the time about during the transition, after the transition, we just talked all the time. And uh, I'm grateful. I mean, I was 34 years old. I needed someone. Um, and so, I mean, whoever's taking over needs to have uh, some level of their own security that, um, that they can withstand a presence like Pete or like you carry there. You just, you just need a solid self to say, um, I'm, I'm okay with their presence here and I'm going to lead in the way that I believe God has called me to. Uh, and so I had to delineate and distinguish between one of the moments when Pete is Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, giving yeah. him advice. And when is Pete Saul trying to give me armor that doesn't fit me? And I'll tell you, there are times where Pete, we're both. <laughs> right. There are times yeah. when he was giving me his armor and saying, Rich, I, I do it this way. And I said, ah, that doesn't feel right. And there were times he was Jethro for me, giving me wisdom. I had to do the hard work of trying to distinguish, is, is this Saul or is this Jethro? You know, you, in the best way possible there. So, what, yeah. Those uh, are things that uh, that's really, stuff. really, really helpful. And it seems like there's might be some parallels between your process and what Jeff Brody and I went through at Connexus, which is interesting. But what what made you say yes? And what, because we're all a little insecure, I think deep down, at least I am. What gave you the security to be able to say, I'm, I'm going to step into these big shoes, founder, um, well-known, national profile, and local church, but I'll step into that. Like, what was what was your own emotional process like in that? A couple of things. One is I knew God spoke to me, I, I think, deeply in a college class that I, I, I took at, um, I went to Nyack College. I was taking a leadership and administration class. I was 21 years old, and we were talking about various leadership styles. And, uh, you know, from entrepreneurial style to someone who's going to systematize, build systems around. And there was there was one profile of a leader that I thought, oh, that's me. I, I'm going to take what someone has already established and I'm going to build on it, not just build systems, but help carry it forward. And deep down inside, even when my friends started planting churches left and right, and I felt the, the urge to plant a church myself, I just knew this is not what God has called me to do. God has not called me to plant a church. Hmm. God, I believe, has called me to build on what someone else has done. And, um, and, I still try to plant a church, but yeah. <laughs> it just never worked. It just didn't work out in terms of uh, the denomination I was looking to work with. And then I got a call from New Life to be an assistant pastor there. But it was my own internal call of, uh, yes, this is the kind of uh, role I saw myself in for many years. And so when the opportunity became available, I just sensed that was God's confirmation of, yeah, this is, this is who I am. The other thing is... Um, Carrie, I know I'm a good preacher, 
And um, I think my preaching gifts, um, I felt very confident in my preaching gifts. And um, I know Pete, we're, we're very similar and we're very different. And uh, I think my preaching gifts, I thought were strong enough uh, to uh, lead this church in this capacity, as well as just the, the ways that Pete has uh, was discipling me. I thought I had enough from him in terms of uh, growing in self-awareness, uh, leadership practices and strategies and such. But I, I just had a confidence um, in my own gifts hmm. that, yeah. Um, and, you know, this is, I don't want to live a, a false humility and I don't want to be, but I, I just, I know what I'm good at. And I thought, I think I could do this well with the proper parameters around me. Once you got into the lead pastor seat, the senior role, what was the biggest surprise, Rich? The biggest surprise was how fast my shadow side came to the surface. And what I mean by, <laughs> you know, um, I remember um, Bob Beal. Are you familiar with Bob Beal? I know the name, never met him. Yeah. He's written books on, well, he was a consultant for us and he came in and said, Rich, there are, there are four years to every transition and every year has a name and don't mix up these years. And so he said, it's going to take you four years to come up to speed. And he said, that's basically what it takes for the average person in any new role. And so he named the years. He said, the first year is orientation. The second year is uh, experimentation. The third year is evaluation. The fourth year is acceleration. You'll come up to speed at that point. And he said, don't mix up those years. Don't try to accelerate when this is a year of orientation. And I thought, yeah, 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 no problem. And uh, then I got into the role and I thought, we need to plant 70 churches in the first three years. And you know, I was trying to justify my existence as a pastor and a leader. I wanted to show the church I have gifts and I'm different than Pete. And so I was just surprised. And I started moving in a particular direction and one of our pastors said, I think we need to pause for a moment and discern God's will. And we had been reading uh, one of Ruth Haley Barton's books on discerning God's will together. And there was a really nice process of discernment. And one of our pastors took that, um, kind of adapted it to our own situation. And by the end of the two and a half hour discernment meeting, prayerful meeting, uh, it became really clear, this is not the right timing. This is not the right decision. Um, and seven years later, we're, we're looking to start our, our first church plant next year. Um, but it took seven, eight years to get there. But I was surprised at how easily my shadow side, my need for validation, my need to prove myself came to the surface. It was very quickly, it very quickly happened. Yeah, and, and on that note, how has becoming the senior leader threatened, improved, or changed your spiritual health? It's a, it's a different seat. And almost everyone I know who stepped into it is like, oh, here we are. This is, this is really different. And yeah. you can't explain it. You can't anticipate it. So how has that your spiritual health morphed or emerged? There is definitely an intensity of being the, the, the lead person. And, and so it, lots of projection coming my way when people are people with their unresolved family of origin issues are going to now see me as um, uh, an authority figure that 
represents all of their unmet needs and such. Uh, so, I, so I'm 34 years old and I have 50 and 6 year olds that are talking to me like I'm their father uh, or upset with me like I haven't affirmed them. And I'm thinking, I'm 20 years younger than you. Uh, and so the level of projection uh, is, is very difficult, which is, I mean, why Pete would tell me over and over, you know, the higher you go, the more self-aware you need to become. Hmm. Uh, so the, the, the weight that was put on me to grow in self-awareness, um, to confront my own unresolved issues, uh, that was a weight and that was heavy to be uh, confrontational with self-confrontational compassionately, you know, self-curious and confrontational with myself. Um, but, uh, that's, yeah, th- that's what I think about. It's different when the buck stops with you. There's just a pressure that I didn't feel when Pete was in the role. Uh, so growing in self-awareness, I think was a, it changed my the trajectory. I have to be the you know the most the most differentiated person in the organization or in the church, um, because the, the differentiation of a of any church uh, is dependent upon the person who is shaping the culture most. And um, and so I had to really learn about that. Can you explain what you mean by differentiation? Differentiation. My definition it comes out of family systems theory and. Sure. My definition of differentiation is remaining close to myself and remaining close to others in times of high anxiety. Hmm. And, um, and it's, it's um, rejecting the, the, the two polar extremes of enmeshment or cutting people off, which is often what happens in leadership context and in marriages and all that. How can I remain close to myself and close to you, especially in times of high anxiety? And so um, someone who's lowly differentiated will either go down the road of enmeshment where they, right. they're, yeah, I'm going to do what you want me to do. Why don't we have another prayer meeting? Why don't we have these kinds of small groups? Why don't we have three services on Sunday? Well, let's do it then. All right. And I'm not mm-hmm. clear within my own self. Or I'm going to cut everybody off and do whatever I want to do and um, hurt relationships and such. And so uh, to grow in that where I need to be clear about my own vision and where I sense God calling our congregation while remaining close to people who may disagree, especially in times of high anxiety, really creates a culture. What, which was your tendency to cut yourself off or to get enmeshed with others? I, like, I, I want to be liked too much. So ah. uh, enmeshment, I want everyone to like me, Carrie. So, um, which is why during this time of COVID, uh, when, uh, you know, I'm making decisions not everyone's happy with. And so yeah. that's been particularly challenging for me because I want everyone to like me. So my, my, the gravitational pull for me is to go towards enmeshment uh, as opposed to cutting people off. So how do you work through that? I mean, you're, you're reading the mail of a lot of leaders listening right now. They're like, yeah, I want to be popular. And I think having worked with a lot of people who are the successors like yourself to founding or longtime pastors, legacy pastors or legacy leaders, even in business, there is, I think there's an even deeper desire for approval because the founder was seen to be so approved and esteemed or whatever. And I promise you after a few years, they forget about you. I, I can vouch for that, but you know, that, that's not the perception. So what would you say? Uh, like how, how, how did you overcome that? Or you know, how are you overcoming? I realize it's not complete. We all struggle with that stuff. Yeah, it's a journey I think I'll be on for a while. Um, I, I think part of it is I, 
I have rhythms of therapy. Number one, just back to that self-awareness piece where um, I, I need multiple um, people in my life to help me navigate the interior world. And so I have a leadership coach. I have a therapist. I have seasonal spiritual direction. And uh, I need all these things to help me grow in greater self-awareness, name my the shadow parts of my, the dark sides of my own soul. And I just know left to my own devices, I'm going to lead in a way that is going to be hurtful either to myself or to others. So um, I just know I need a lot of help from the outside. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, you got a brand new book called The Deeply Formed Life that uh, probably by the time this airs will be out. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when this is going to air. And it's about spiritual formation. Uh, I'd love to start with your critique because you wouldn't be alone saying perhaps there are some issues with spiritual formation in the Western church or the American church. But I'd love your sort of assessment or critique of Western spirituality as it sits today. Yeah. How long do we have, Carrie? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, let me try to um, distill some... Uh, critiques that I've seen. Uh, Robert Mulholland, who, who's written a number of books on spiritual formation, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he makes a really powerful distinction in one of his books where he says that uh, we can either be uh, in the world for God or in God for the world. Hmm. We can be in the world for God or in God for the world. To be in the world for God is what the typical discipleship uh, expression looks like. We have our banners, we have our issues, we have our things that we think God is concerned about. And of course, God is most passionate about what I'm most passionate about. So I wave my particular banner um, to see a particular issue addressed, which is what drives much of uh, you know the church with regard to politics and such. And so it becomes issue uh generated it, you know we are we are formed by particular issues uh that's being in the world for god and we bring what we think is important to god but to be in god for the world begins at a, a, a different place it begins with our being with god uh out of which now we want to be uh, a presence of god in the world and so i think that little um, statement from Dr. Mahalan really gets at it. Uh, moreover, when I think about um, what's going on in uh, spiritual formation, my critiques of it in the Western world, uh, and the spaces I inhabit are often, you know, evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic uh, context, in which uh, an increase, you know, and uh, mainline context as well. Just so I'm in many different spaces. And spiritual formation is often seen either as right thinking, right experiences, or right action. Hmm. And um, and so it's, you know, in the evangelical, get the right doctrine right, and you'll be okay. Or in the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, it's get the right experiences, and you'll be okay. Or in more progressive, uh, mission-driven church context, it's, you know, right action. It's justice and mercy. Uh, that's Get that right. And so for me, it's... Uh, uh, discipleship and formation has been so compartmentalized that we are, yeah, working for justice, but our souls are compromised. Or we are having right experiences, but we're still not loving well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so how do we hold 
these things together. Uh, lastly, I'd say about this is spiritual formation, discipleship is often begins and ends at behavior modification. And, you know, change your behaviors and you'll be okay. Um, which is why at New Life, our logo, our church logo is an iceberg. We're in Queens, you know, but hey, it's an iceberg. And <laughs> it's the image of Jesus wants to transform more than what you see above the surface. Your idols, your fears, the deeply uh, ingrained family of origin scripts that have shaped the way we live in the world. God wants to get at those things. And so we want to move beyond behavior modification into deep transformation. So those are some of the things that I think about with um, a spiritual formation that um, doesn't help people, but actually does harm. You know, I've been thinking a little bit about spiritual rhythms, disciplines, and uh, you know, even the monastic order, not that that's part of my life or tradition, but uh, probably my all-time favorite book, I don't know that you would have read it, is uh, Genesee Diary by Henry Nouwen. It's just when he went into a Trappist monastery in upstate New York in 1974 and just subjected himself to the rhythms of monastic life. I think it's fascinating. And yet you see like most people don't have a spiritual discipline. It's like, well, I had five minutes with God this morning or in the car, or, you know, I go, went for a walk or whatever. Do you think there is a connection between that and purposelessness or the spike in anxiety or some of the issues? Like you just look, we seem to be an untethered, unhinged culture, even in the church. What is the, what is the connection between spiritual disciplines and all the problems that we're seeing in people. Yeah, you know, I think insofar as the rhythms that we give ourselves to um, help us to be present to God, to ourselves, and to others, um, uh, insofar as that's the truth, we will live with a greater sense of peace, purposefulness, a, a life of, of meaning and such. But I, I do think um, because we have been so discipled by a culture of speed, uh, you know, we live in a scrolling, skimming, fast-paced culture. Uh, and I do think there's significant correlations between the pace of our lives um, and the anxiety that we feel. And so I think rhythms, not every, um, every person does not need to be practicing every single spiritual rhythm and such, but I do think uh, to the degree that we open, for me, spiritual rhythms are opening ourselves up to God. And whether that's in silence, whether that's in the, the slow reading of scripture, whether that's in Sabbath keeping, um, I think if we are connecting ourselves to God in that way, that sense of meaning will start flowing, but it takes time. Uh, and, um, you know, Henry Nouwen, speaking of Nouwen, he would say, uh, it's in prayer. You don't see change while you're in prayer. It's only when you look uh, back that you actually begin to see something's happened. Hmm. It's this Kierkegaard statement that, you know, life is lived forward, but understood backwards. It's, it's, I see in retrospect the ways that God has been moving in my life, but it takes uh, significant patience and a commitment to, to remain in those rhythms, which is why there's a, a prayer that I teach our church to, you know, ask the Holy Spirit to, you know, produce in us a desire to pray more. And, it's, Lord, give me the desire to seek you more and more. And when that desire is not there, grant me discipline to do so. Like, I, I want to pray out of deep desire. Hmm. 
and then I know that there are times I don't want it at all. I'd rather yeah. just be playing a video game. And uh, But Lord, give me discipline to seek you more and more. So I do think there's a significant correlation between the lack of spiritual rhythms and the deep anxiety and purposelessness that people feel. How is um, typical churchy spiritual advice unhelpful? You know, when I think about churchy um, spiritual advice, the challenge with it is it's, um, it's very simplistic. Yeah. Can you give us a couple of examples of what you think simplistic churchy advice would be? hundred percent. Um, you know, you got to just rejoice in the Lord always, you know? Okay. So, you know, so, so Paul said, and not that it's very biblical. Uh, it's actually Paul true. Said, it's true. But... However, the same Bible that says rejoice in the Lord always has a book called Lamentations. <laughs> okay. So, and so, um, uh, you know, praising God and lamenting are not mutually exclusive. Uh, but churchy advice says, it, it stays within the simplicity, the, not the simplicity, the, the, the simplistic nature of just life. And so another one is I think of churchy language, you know, God will give you clarity. <laughs> you know, it, just, it just sounds great. And I remember a, a, a story told about Mother Teresa where someone came up to her and said, uh, Mother Teresa, can you um, pray for me that I would have clarity? And her response was, no, I will not pray that you have clarity. I will pray that you would have trust <laughs> and, and decide, you know? And I thought, wow, that's a disorienting prayer. I want clarity. Mm-hmm. But sometimes God doesn't give any kind of clarity and we have to just move forward. And so uh, churchy advice is, it's pretty simplistic. It's, it's not nuanced. It doesn't see the multiple layers at work. It's easy. Yeah, you know, it's a weird world we live in. Uh, let me let me try this theory out on you because I'm thinking back over decades of ministry and often, huh, I, don't, I don't even know how to express it, but like I've got actual people's people going through my mind. And often when people have those simple spiritual answers, they come from a good place. They're really, they're, they're good people. They actually love Jesus, but you know, no pain is allowed. But I look into their lives and the better I get to know them, the more I think, I think you're using that as a mask for your own pain, that there's such deep pain and such dysfunction. And, you know, you want to praise the Lord and you want to lift your hands and you wish worship was more joyful. And, you know, you, you're, you're anytime someone's down, you're like, oh, we're going to be there for you. But I'm like, is there an ocean of grief underneath that? Have you ever seen that? Or like, do you think sometimes we mask our own emotional angst with these little trivial spiritual bandages? Yeah, I, I think it's, I absolutely think it's uh, underlining grief, fear, uh, fear of losing control. I mean, when we have Mm. these biblical platitudes and theological cliches and such, it's our way of maintaining control when we feel uh, totally disoriented. And so it's our way of convincing ourselves things are going to be okay. When in fact, um, I think the invitation from God in these moments is uh, what's happening inside you? What is God trying to tell you what, what do you need to hear in this moment? But we want to remain in control. And um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm accustomed to, you know, pain avoidance. And <laughs> uh, I can use every Bible verse in the book to keep me focused on all the good and happy things that are going on. But I, I think, yeah, I think 
Um, these things are often a mask of our own to our own grief, sadness, and uh, reveals our deep desire to be in control and our vulnerabilities. Right? If if I, I like your categories, and may have heard them before, but you just said them so clearly. Uh, right thinking for evangelicals or conservatives. Right expression. Did I get that right? For people, experiences on the charismatic side, and then right actions on the social justice you know, maybe perhaps more progressive thing. And I wonder if all of that to one extent or another, um, and all of them are needed. You should have a good experience. You should have good thinking and doctrine and you should have good action. I mean, it all goes together. But I wonder when they get um, to become part of, you know, that aspect becomes the whole, whether that in fact, you know, my certainty is a mask for the uncertainty I feel or Mm -hmm. my experience Mm -hmm. and constant comfort is, a mask for the discomfort I feel. I don't know. Any other thoughts on that? Maybe that's a dead thing, but I just, you've got me thinking. I, you know, I think um, we often use God to run from God and we use God to run from ourselves. And I think these are the various ways that we do that. To be in to be in relationship with God is to be in is to confront ourselves. This is Isaiah in chapter six. Uh, you know, you know, he's the holiness of God is in the temple, and he goes, "Woe is me!" Any genuine encounter with God is going to lead to an encounter with ourselves. Uh, but it's um, that's hard. That's a hard path mm-hmm. that most of us, myself included, uh, have a difficulty um, wanting to go through. Well, so deconversion stories have become almost the norm in the last few decades where, you know, prominent people, whether that's pastors, musicians, and then just probably millions, sadly, of Christians who are like, yeah, I'm just kind of out on this. Is there a link between the deconversions we're seeing and a lack of spiritual formation, the spiritual poverty? The, the deconversions carry. I on? meant deconversions. I know the question I sent you said reconversions. That was a flip. A de- you know that idea that I'm walking away from my faith. The college student who never comes back. The 35 year old who got divorced and just kind of slipped away from the church. The deconversion stories where people are just gone. Yeah, yeah, and the connection between that and spiritual formation. and spiritual formation. I'm just wondering, you know, if you're there for three songs and a message. And you're just kind of, you know, participating and, and the faith never really got formed in you. Yeah, yeah. I thought you said deacon, first of all. Oh, Gary. deconversion so said, must be my Canadian accent. What do deacons have to do with this? So um, I'm sure uh, there have been a few people who deconverted because of a deacon. There must be three, at least. I, I can think of a few more than that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do think, I think this moment of, in, in COVID that we're in right now, um, brings uh, some things to the surface regarding our formation, regarding our ecclesiology. Uh, we are learning afresh that um, church is not uh, an event, it's not an experience, it's not a product. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most people have related to church in this way. It's, it's an event, it's a location, it's an experience, it's a product. Yeah. And... Um, and so I think that's part of it. Our ecclesiology has been um, underdeveloped for many years. So as a result, if, you know, if I don't have church, you know, I'm, I don't have God in this kind of a way. But I also think the ways that we form people um, or, or don't form people have led to 
the deconversions that you see. Um, because um, if you don't have rhythms to sustain you in times of difficulty and hardship, um, you're going to find other ways to numb your pain, other ways to um, figure out how to get through whatever you're experiencing. So I, I do think there's a, a correlation between it. Okay. One of the interesting quotes uh, from you is that we are formed to believe that God is only in the places and with the people that mirror our belief systems. Can you explain that a little bit? I thought it was very um, powerful observation. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, can, I include myself in this. You know, I, I think we live in a self-referential world, mm-hmm. um, and and so we we. God is passionate about what I'm passionate about. And so it begins with me. Uh, and, and so uh, if I believe this, God is here. If you don't believe this, God is out. So it's a bounded set, in or out, either or right. way of... If you vote the way I vote, if you think the way I think, if you believe yeah. the way I believe, then God is with you. And otherwise, yeah. probably not. And we're seeing it. I mean, we got an election coming up here. I, I don't know if you're. I'm not. Don't know if you're aware. Um, uh, I've heard. Yeah. And you have pastors um, saying, "If you don't vote for this person, you are not a Christian." You know, it's just. And I'm thinking, wow, here we are. Um, so it's a filter bubble world. It's a self-referential world. Um, and I think what what's happened is we've turned belief systems into gods and uh, to idols. You know, Stanley Haros would say that um, in America, we don't believe in God. We believe in belief. Uh, and so we create our own categories of what we are most passionate about and then determine God must be with me um, and not with those people. And, you know, I think about what, you know, Anne Lamont said, you know, you've made God in your image when God hates all the people you hate. Yeah. And uh, and so, it's a, again, it's a self-referential way of living in the world. Um, which is um, not Christian at all um, because it sets me at the center of everything. Hmm. You talk about three diets that help you explain uh, our sort of disordered understanding of sexuality and the inherent dangers in each of the diets. Can you, can you talk about that? That's an interesting way of framing sexuality. Yeah, um, the categorizations of these diets come from Christopher West. Christopher West, uh, he's written a lot on uh, theology of the body, focusing on uh, John Paul II's massive work on sexuality. And um, his, his framing of it that I've adapted is that the three diets are starvation diet, fast food diet, and the banquet, when we talk about our bodies and talk about sexuality. Mm. And the starvation diet is really about seeing our body, seeing our longings, seeing our sexuality as things to be uh, repressed, suppressed. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's so a conservative gen- upbringing. Yeah, it's like, ooh, this is bad. You know, you can't. And, and Carrie, let's, uh, this is if. How can the church navigate the challenging waters of the LGBTQ plus conversation when Christians, generally speaking, have this view of their own bodies? They can't, they can't. I remember, I never forgot, Carrie, we were had an emotionally healthy spirituality leadership conference and yeah. Jerry Scazzaro got up and she said the word penis and vagina from the stage. You would have thought she cursed someone out because... <laughs> The shock. And I'm thinking, if we can't say 
terms that are, you know, biologically sanctioned, you know, okay, you know, just to yeah. say these, how are we going to wrestle with some of the larger complexities of sexuality? So the starvation diet is see your longings uh, to be repressed, to be suppressed, to be rejected. It's Jeremiah, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things who right. can know it. Uh, and so it's starvation. So your body is bad. Basically. Your body's bad. And this comes, you know, it comes out of ancient Gnosticism, which says that the body's bad, the spirit is good. You want to do everything you can to release the spirit from the cage of the body. Uh, and, and, and this finds itself manifesting all throughout church history uh, in the third century with Origen, who uh, tradition says castrated himself because he wanted to do away with his sexual urges. Mm -hmm. St. Augustine, um, you know, who had a you know, long struggle with sexuality and spirituality and such, to revivalist movements, evangel evangelical purity movements, Pentecostal holiness movements, where the body's bad, the spirit is good. So that's the, um, that's the starvation. And then there's the fast food diet, which um, if, the, if the starvation diet is about repression, the the fast food diet is about reduction. And by that, I mean, you are reducing your deepest longings and deepest desires to physical desires. Mm. And so it's, I'm going to eat at McDonald's and do whatever I want with my body. Um, and, and it's the fast food diet. But So it's almost to, like a hookup culture kind of thing? Hookup or? culture, no discernment around what it, our bodies about sexuality. Uh, so, and too much fast food will make you sick. And so that's the, it's the polar opposite of that starvation diet. And then there's the banquet. Uh, uh, those are, that's the, the categories that Christopher West offers that I found to be helpful. And the banquet is really about what does it mean to cultivate intimacy with God and with others? And it doesn't mean that someone's sexually active or doesn't mean you have to be sexually active to live a full human life. I mean, Jesus was not sexually active. Uh, and I mean, the, the fullness of God and, you know, you're not going to get more human than Jesus. So the banquet is about communion between God and each other, seeing each other, not as people to use, but as people to be in communion with. Hmm. Oh, that, that's interesting. And, um, <laughs> how do you counsel Christians who feel stuck somewhere between fast food and starvation? What do you say to them? Well, it's not easy. I mean, uh, I think part of the formation of our sexuality has to first be about looking, uh, looking to our past and how we've been sexually deformed. And so before we can even talk about how do we move forward today, I think we have to identify how have you been shaped? Um, how have you been formed? Um, what are the sexual messages of deformed sexual messages you've inherited. And let's talk about that before we can talk about how to move forward. Because, the, you know, at New Life, we say, you know, Jesus lives in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. <laughs> and uh, by that, we mean, you know, we all have positive legacies that we've inherited from our families of origin, you know, our parents or grandparents, but we also have some negative legacies. And uh, one of those negative legacies is often the ways that we have been formed to think about sex and sexuality from our parents, from our churches. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to get get done to identify those things before we can even talk about what it means to see our bodies as a good gift uh, for the world around us. 
It's interesting that you would include so much on sexuality in a book on spiritual formation, the deeply formed life, because normally you would expect prayer, Bible, worship, right? Which, which is part of it, but you actually camp out on sexuality a lot. Why, why did you do that? On one level, I'm, what I'm attempting to do in this book is to offer, you know, an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation. And, um, you know, the deeply formed life for me is it's a life that's shaped by and for Jesus in the world, of course, mm. um, but in a way that is robustly integrative. And um, you're right. Usually books on spiritual formation are about your private disciplines, the prayer, the Bible, the silence, the solitude. But as I look at the world we live in, I think we have to be thinking formatively about many different issues. And I mean, the five I talk about in our, you know, contemplative rhythms, race, racial justice, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And for me, I'm trying to think formatively about these areas because these are, as a pastor, I mean, these are the areas that I think are really um significant for this particularly cultural mo- this particular cultural moment that we're in uh, to think not just biblically or theological, but formatively, uh, formationally. How do we live from a different center when talking about these things? Porn, and, and we're, we'll get to some of the others in a moment, but porn is such a huge issue um, for people, also for leaders, also for pastors. What would you say to someone who says, Rich, you know, appreciate what you're saying, but I'm somewhere between starvation and fast food, and at least in my thought life, I don't know how to get to the banquet table. Any any advice for leaders who would say I'm I'm just I'm stuck in that path, either mentally or physically? Yeah, and you know when I think about things like porn or any any addiction for that matter, um, I think we need another a reframing of it as well. And it's often the case that when someone hears that someone has been um, addicted to pornography or what have you. Um, it goes right into behavior modification. You shouldn't do that. Mm. This, that's not right. As opposed to, um, these are various ways that people are numbing their pain. And that's what addiction is. It's, it's a way to self-soothe um, because I've been experiencing lots of pain and I need to escape this pain. And whether it's with food, whether it's with work, whether it's with sex, pornography, there are some wounds deep within that I'm trying to just soothe. And so when I, I, I'd like to counsel people that whenever they encounter someone who's experiencing some form of addiction sexually, instead of saying, stop doing that, I think we should say something along the lines of, wow, uh, you, you've survived. You, you figured out how to survive through your pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, this is not going to help you in the long run. Let's think of something else. I think that's a, a different reframing, a more gentle reframing of addiction as opposed to, you know, moving from right or wrong categories to you're deeply wounded and you're trying to self-soothe, but the self-soothing is actually going to lead you to greater bondage. Let's try something else. Oh, that's a really helpful reframing. I haven't heard that before. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your model for racial justice and reconciliation that you lay out in the deeply formed life. And you lead, you, you minister in a hugely diverse city right out of Queens, New York City. Um, but, you know, it's a particular moment where I think America is waking up to injustice in a way that perhaps hasn't happened in a while. Yeah, when, you know, our congregation, we have 75 nations represented, um, 123 languages spoken at the nearby hospital. 
Um, and we have folks from all walks of life. And so we have seen, I, there are moments where I see God working in our church. And I, there are times where I go, wow, this thing is not working. <laughs> this diversity thing is not going to work here. But when I, when I think about race, uh, I like to think of it in terms of framework and formation. Um, if we're going to have a good, robust conversation about race, I think we need to address it on at least six levels, Carrie. I think six levels. And, and here, this is what I think those levels are. I think it's theological, historical, sociological, ecclesiologically, formationally, and politically. Uh, if we're going to have a good, robust conversation, you know, what scriptures say, where have we been historically, what are the sociological data that we need to pay attention to, uh, what's the church's response? What kind of life do I need to engage the conversation? And then what does this look like in the public sphere? Mm. Um, if we're not having those conversations on those layers, we're going to have a pretty a limited myopic view of this massive issue. And so when I think about my approach, it's that's the framework for it. And then when I think about formation, what what I'm attempting to do is to help people live with greater self-awareness uh, so that they can make courageous decisions about what it means to move beyond a ra the racialized world that we live in, that sees hierarchies, that sees um, uh, matters of race uh, being expressed, not just individually, but interpersonally and institutionally. Um, so, yeah, in the book, I just talk about various um, uh, racial habits to cultivate so we can move to greater freedom and uh, greater love, not just personally, but also publicly. Can you name one or two of those habits? Yeah, very similar to the chapter on, uh, you know, sexual formation, in terms of racial formation. Um, how have we been formed by our families of origin? I, I lead our church in a very interesting um, exercise. I connect the genogram uh, you know, which comes out of family system. The genogram comes out of family. The genogram comes out of family systems theory. Think of it as a family tree, um, but you are helping to make connections in three areas. It, you're trying to identify various patterns from one generation to the next. Uh, trauma. Hmm. This is my rendering of it, and the various scripts that you've inherited, whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, and so, when I think about race, and I'm help, trying to help people grow in this area, I want to I find out what are the stories, what are the patterns, what are the scripts that you've inherited, and how is that shaping you today? Hmm. And so, I mean, in our church, we ask very direct questions. How have you been formed to see Black people? How have you been formed to see white people, Asian people, Native American people, uh, Mexican people? What are the stories you've heard about them? Can you name them? And let me tell you, there are times when people in our church, and I've done this in other leadership gatherings, the embarrassment um, to name, this is what I think about Black people, and this is what my family thought about Black people. Can you name it? Can you confess it? And um, lots of people have a hard time doing it. But I think to do that leads us down a path of now healing and freedom and vulnerability and honesty. I mean, we, we cannot change what we cannot name. Uh, and... Um, so identifying the ways we've been shaped by, you know, our, doing our own racial self-examination, I think is really important. Uh, I also talk about 
the habit of remembering. Um, if, if we're going, we, we using the genogram is again as well. I am who I am in large part because I have been formed by a particular family system. Uh, the, his, the, the my past has much bearing on my present and my future. And if I don't address my past, um, honestly, I'm going to just perpetuate this from one generation to the next. I think you take that principle and apply it now nationally, racially. We have a particular history hmm. in this country and in this world. And unless we are able to be honest about that history um, and the residue of that history today, we're going to have a hard time moving forward. And so um, most people um, want to forget. They live with a, a cultural amnesia when it comes to race. Uh, and so those are a couple of practices that I try to help people dive into um, to walk through the way of healing racially. Well, there's so much else. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? Anything else that you're like, oh, I want everyone to know this? You know, when I think about leaders, uh, whether in the marketplace, pastors, um, and I think about the particular moment that we're in, um, I'm aware that our rhythms are all messed up. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the greatest gift that leaders can give themselves in this moment is uh, the gift of Sabbath. Um, and I think it informs everything else we do. Uh, Sabbath is just a 24-hour period with no have-tos or shoulds, which is to result in deep rest and renewal. And we live in a society, especially with COVID now, where things blend, days blend into the next day. I, sometimes I don't know, is it today, Monday, or is it Thursday? I have yeah, no yeah. clue. Uh, Everything balance, feels the same all the time. Yeah, <laughs> it's Groundhog's Day, you know? And um, the container of the Sabbath for pastors and leaders, I think is really critical to um, sustain the work uh, that we do for God. And I'll, I'll, with regarding that, I'll just end with this story, Carrie. If you have any other questions, I'm happy to answer them. But um, when I became, when I was interviewing for the position to pastor at New Life, Pete interviewed me and it was the last interview. And we're at this diner. I ordered grilled cheese sandwiches and French fries and and Pete is notorious for stealing French fries off other people's plate. So it's, I'll just throw that <laughs> well, out there. Well, now so it's out there. Okay, thank he, you. He, he's grabbing my fries. I'm going, what is this guy doing? I just met him, you know. And uh, and so he were talking. And then he goes, Rich, do you know the only way you'll get fired here? And, you know, I just, you know, sat up a little straighter. And he said, the only way you'll get fired as a pastor at New Life, and I think he was speaking a bit hyperbolically, but his point was well taken. He said, the only way you get fired is if you don't take time to keep Sabbath. And I thought, that's odd. Um, I thought he was going to say, if you don't work your tail off and all that, get fired. He said, if you don't keep Sabbath, he said, because if you don't have that kind of rhythm, you won't have the, the life with God deep enough to sustain the work you're doing for God. And uh, you won't make it. And I, I took that to heart. And I've been you know, practicing Sabbath the last 12 years, and it has meant the world to me to recognize that this church is not built on me um, and is not held together by me. Um, Jesus Christ is before all things and in him, all things hold together. What's your Sabbath look like? It may vary, but just give us a few, a little snapshot. 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday. That's the the, the period. Um, uh, we have four um, movements or four categories of Sabbath that we teach at New Life, just stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. And so, number one, I'm stopping all work. I mean, literally stopping all work. No emails, no phone calls, no sermon prep. 
um, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping. Uh, resting is, you know, I'm, I, I'm napping from time to time. I'm, I'm trying to, what are the, what are the activities or no activities that, that give rest? The big part is the delighting piece. And Carrie, this is the area that I've struggled with for 12 years. Um, it's the older we get, the more delight deficient we become. Hmm. Which is why we are to be like children. Children have no problem delighting. Yeah. Uh, and so what are the things that produce joy and delight in me? And how do I pursue those on the Sabbath? What are one or two things that are doing that right now for you? Uh, sports is great. So uh, I, I love exercise, basketball. It's huge for me, which is why in this COVID season has been so difficult because they took down all the rims and all the local playgrounds during COVID here in New York. And uh, all gyms are closed. So that's one area that gives me great life. Uh, you know, reading, of course, I, I read extensively. Um, uh, meals with family. Mm. Those really produce joy. And then that last part is just contemplation. You know, how am I, am I spending intentional time with God during this Sabbath? So those are the four uh now, with two small kids, there are times where the Sabbath feels like heaven and there are times where it feels like hell. Yeah. And I go, that was not a Sabbath. Our kids, I feel even more tired because my six-year-old and my 11-year-old. Uh, but we get 52 of them a year. So uh, we try the next week. Try to see again. If we get to- yeah. Yeah. Oh, Rich. Okay. I love to ask this question from time to time. What is one question nobody ever asks you that you wish they would ask you? Man, that's such a good question. It's perplexing. Yeah. It could be like trivial or it could be deeply profound. You know, on a, I wish people asked, and I can't say people don't ask me this. Um, uh, people rarely ask how my children are doing. Oh, wow. Um, rarely, if ever. They'll ask my, how's, how's your wife doing? Um, uh, they don't ask how my children are doing. Uh I'm sure there's others, but Rich, I think that's one. how are one your kids thing. doing? <laughs> they are uh, pretty disoriented because um, my daughter's, she's starting middle school, but she's starting middle school from home. And school's supposed to start, on, you know, September 10th. It's going to be delayed another week. And she just wants to go to different classes in different, in a different, in a given day. And so she, her class, she's going now from the living room to her bedroom. <laughs> That's the classes she's going to here. So she's really disappointed with that. And we're helping her to grieve that until we can make a change. And, and um, so she doesn't want to go to school. And my son, Nathan, said the other day, six-year-old over dinner, I hope my school blows up. And so, um, so he doesn't want to go to school at all. So, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> So how are they doing? One's lamenting and one's very angry uh, that he has uh, to go. You know, it's a good reminder um, to ask the personal questions. It really is. I love this. Rich, deeply formed life available everywhere books are sold. And if people want to connect with you, where can they do that? Uh, they can go to richvelotas.com. Uh, that's one place. And then I'm pretty engaged on Twitter and Instagram. So the same handle uh, at Rich. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Rich, it's been a joy. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. uh, This was fun. Well, that was a a meaningful conversation with Rich Velotis. We have everything for you over at the show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 375. Transcripts there, things you can share on social and so much more. 
And uh, all the details, anything we talk about and you're like, oh, I'd like to get that or I'd like to learn more. Yeah, we got that in the show notes for you. And uh, thanks to Aaron Ward, our podcast manager, who takes care of all that stuff week in and week out, as well as managing our brand new little podcast network, Thrivicity. So uh, if you haven't yet checked out uh, the other podcast on this network, we're going to be growing it over the next year. Check out Brad Lominick's H3 Leadership. It's a great podcast. He actually had me on recently, Rick Warren and, and others as well. So Hey, coming up uh, real soon, how about next episode? We do John Gordon. John's been on before, and if you need a positive focus, John is your man. And he's got a brand new book, and we talk about the five Ds, doubt, distortion, discouragement, distraction, and division. It's actually based on the story of the Garden of Eden, and we talk all about that and how this gets into the head of leaders. Here's an excerpt. And so those lies have a goal. The enemy's goals with those lies are to discourage us. The enemy knows that he can't beat us himself. So what does he do? He gets us to beat ourselves. And so we don't give up because it's hard. We give up because we get discouraged. And that's really the main goal of the enemy is to, is to discourage us. And we see a lot of people right now in this world, they are feeling discouraged and they're yeah. giving up. It's coming up next time on the podcast. And uh, we also have, who do we have? We have Bob Westfall, Andy Stanley, Patrick Lencioni, Lisa Turkhurst, uh, and Todd Wilson. Many, many others coming up on the show. It is time for what I am thinking about. And I am thinking about two questions every leader needs to be asking for 2021. This segment is brought to you by Red Letter Challenge. You can learn more by going to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry and uh, unify your church in the midst of a pandemic with a 40-day turnkey done for you campaign based on the teaching and the life of Jesus. And go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry and start saving on healthcare today. Give your team the same or better benefits for less money. Listeners of this show have saved $2.1 million so far and counting. That figure goes up every week. So here's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about um, the future. And we are getting to the point, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to think about 2021. And there are two questions that I'm asking about leaders, two big questions for 2021. And I think they're really important. Uh, question number one is this. Do you have the personal reserves to lead in sustained instability and uncertainty? Uh, I think a lot of us thought, including me at this point, I thought, okay, we'll be back to normal in the fall. You know, scratch that. And at the time that you'll be listening to this, if you're listening in real time, we're heading into an election that doesn't feel very stable. I don't know when things are going to turn around or move into a new era of stability, but right now we're heading into more sustained instability and uncertainty. So you need a new coping mechanism because you're disappointed, you're frustrated, and just, you know, this whole strategy of, well, it's going to go back to normal isn't really working and it may not work for a long, long time or it may not work ever. Um, so what do you do? And I want to say what you need to do is find a sustainable rhythm because time off is what we all look to, right? Time off won't heal you when the problem is how you spend your time on. Like when, when you're living in an unsustainable way day to day to day from crisis to crisis to crisis, you know, a Saturday off isn't going to solve that or a two week vacation at the beach isn't going to solve that. So I would really encourage you to rethink your rhythms as we head into a brand new year. I do something called the high impact leader uh, that could help. I have lots of material on my blog at carrynewhoff.com that can help. And actually, I've just turned in a final manuscript for my next book, which will be out in September 2021 which is all about that. But 
Don't look to time off to heal you when the problem is how you spend your time on. So that's one question I'd be asking. Do you have the personal reserves to lead in sustained instability and uncertainty? I'm working on that myself. Number two, do you have the courage as a leader to make the long-term changes that disruption this deep requires? Um, I think as we move into, because you think about all the adaptation you did in the uh, second quarter of 2020, in the summer of 2020, and you're like, okay, we found stability. But if this instability and uncertainty continues, this probably requires some systemic changes, maybe a reallocation of, of staffing, maybe uh, a rethinking of your model. You know, for those of you who are church leaders, people who are going back to church, it's like, yeah, it's still not the way it should be, right? In your head. Well, what if that becomes a more chronic situation? Do you need to change your model? And those are really deep questions. And that's why I asked the first question first. Do you have the personal reserves to do that? Again, going back to normal has not proven a successful strategy. And crisis is an accelerator. So a lot of these changes that were coming anyway are kind of here. And perhaps they're here to stay. And maybe the shifts in behavior that we're seeing around us that you probably don't like as a leader, I'm beginning to think they're not just medical, they're cultural. In other words, yes, there's a virus. Yes, there's no known vaccine right now, right? And so there's all that stuff. But but what happens is like, are your shopping patterns going back to the way they were before? Some of you have pivoted on schooling. Some of you, you know, with gyms opening and closing, I know near Toronto, they closed again because of a surge in the virus. Uh, if you got those kettlebells going, maybe you're not getting a gym membership. So, um, you know, they are not just medical changes. That's what they were for the first few months. It's like, oh, we have this virus. We can't go to church. We can't do this. We can't do that. Um, but now I think they're becoming cultural changes. So what was medical is now cultural. So those are some things to think about. I know those are really deep questions, but here's why I ask them. I, I want you to be stronger next October when you're listening to this podcast than you are right now. And if you chase down this, do you have the personal reserves to lead in sustained instability and uncertainty? Well, develop those and, and you'll be in a much better place. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the last 15 years thinking about personal reserves and how to adapt and pivot. And I'll tell you, it's a worthwhile journey. Again, you can go to thehighimpactleader.com if you want more on that. And then do you have the courage to make the long-term changes uh, that a, a disruption this deep really requires? Uh, so those are a couple of questions on my brain these days. I hope they help you. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Really excited to do this again next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.